Well, good morning. Great to see you all this morning. I'm glad that we can gather together on this beautiful day. It's a little chilly, but it's all right. It's a beautiful day outside, and uh, we have the opportunity for the next few minutes to um, sit under the teaching of God's Word and to study the Scriptures together. Um, this book is an amazing book and brings life and wisdom in a relationship with God, and we have the opportunity to uh, expose our hearts uh, to his word this morning. So I'm glad we're here to do that together. You can open up to John 3. That's where we'll be. If you're not already there, I assume that you are. I'm sure that each of you, uh, if I were to ask you this morning, could think back over whether it's birthday gifts or Christmas gifts that you have received or have given, and uh, you have been able to, or you would be able to identify maybe one or two gifts that you have given that were just above all the rest. They really hit it exactly right. It was the right moment. It was the perfect item. Maybe it was a surprise. Your loved one or your friend didn't expect it, but it uh, continues to echo down to this day in family lore as an amazing gift. We have some of those in our family um, that I won't tell you about all of them. Uh, this morning. But I've given some very successful gifts over the years, and I've also failed and given some very miserable gifts over the years. I have also been the recipient of some wonderful, well-timed gifts. And one of those that is still sitting on our coffee table in our living room to this day uh, is a gift that Bethany gave me. I think it was maybe our first or second Valentine's Day. So this is going back a number of years. And for Valentine's Day, she got me the complete, newly published, they just put it all together, set of Calvin and Hobbes comics. It was, my kids are shaking their heads because they still enjoy the benefit of that gift. It's sitting there and they read it frequently, uh, at least every week. Some one of them is found reading uh, one of those three volume, uh, the, the books that have the Calvin and Hobbes comics in it. Um, now, it's true that the thought does count when you're giving a gift. That is true, but you never really want to be the one of whom that is said, right? Of your gift. Well, it's the thought that counts. In other words, you failed pretty miserably, but you at least gave it the old good try, right? You, you gave it the best effort. When you give a gift, you want it to be something that is good, right? You want it to be something that is useful, that the other person finds delight in, and not that they ask you for a gift receipt so that you can, they can return it. But that's really the point, isn't it, when you give a gift? Love expresses itself in the giving of good gifts. It considers the other person and tries to find something that they will delight in and will be useful and that they will enjoy. Giving a gift is a manifestation of love. We give gifts to those that we love. The reason we do that, and it comes so naturally to us, I think, is because we bear the image of our Heavenly Father who gives. This is His nature. He gives out of the overflow of who He is. And we reflect that when we enjoy and take delight in giving to others. And of course, the greatest gift that he has given to us as his image bearers far exceeds what you and I can imagine and can even deserve. 
And we're going to get to that gift today when we get to probably the most well-known verse in the Bible, John 3.16. And we'll get there. But of course, you know that that verse comes in a context. You can't just pull it out of the scriptures and make it stand on its own, although it does present wonderful truths in and of itself, but it does come in a context. And we want to uncover how that verse fits in the context because then it'll have even more delight and it'll warm our souls as we see what it's communicating to us. And so we're going to go back and review what we talked about last week and then get into uh, the rest of this passage this week. You can see John 2, 23 through 321, the necessity of the new birth. And in this passage, we're looking at four reasons that you must experience the new birth. We started last week with this first reason at the end of chapter 2 going into chapter 3. Here's the first reason that you and I, we have a problem that requires the new birth. And so last week, if you look back in chapter 2, the very end there, the last couple of verses, we saw that Jesus had cleaned out the temple and that he had done signs in Jerusalem at the Passover and that many people were interested in the signs that he had done. Look at verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Now, initially you read that and think that's wonderful, but we, come, we find out in verses 24 and 25 that this belief was not genuine faith. We find out that this belief is a superficial fascination with miracles and with the signs that he had been doing. Look at verses 24 and 25. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus understood what was going on here with this belief, this superficial reaction to the signs that he had been doing, and he understood what was going on because he knew what was in the heart of every human being. What is in the heart of every human being? We are born into this world darkened in our understanding. We are in rebellion. Our hearts are set in rebellion against God, and we don't want anything to do with Him. We are self-centered and morally opposed to Him. And Jesus understood that about every person. And so at the beginning of chapter 3, we come to an individual who sort of gives us an example of the general principle that we just saw at the end of chapter 2. These people at, at the end of chapter 2 are interested in the signs that Jesus is performing, and then we get this singular individual, Nicodemus, who comes along and is interested in Jesus, but he too at this stage is also interested in the signs. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, of course, Nicodemus is not opposed to Jesus. He's not railing against him here. He's interested and he wants to come and have a conversation with him. But he does focus on the signs and he can't quite fully understand who it is that Jesus is at this point. Notice Nicodemus doesn't ask a question here. He sort of makes this statement and, and is trying to show that he knows at least something about Jesus. And then Jesus responds in verse 3 and gets to the heart of the issue, as he always seems to do in the Gospels. And this brings us to our second reason 
Oops, and the third one is on there as well. So we'll get to that a little bit later. The second reason that you and I must experience the new birth is this. We cannot enter God's kingdom without the new birth. This is in verse 3 through verse 8. Jesus goes to the heart of the issue here in verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, even with his interest in Jesus and the signs and his curiosity about him, Nicodemus, along with every person sitting here, with every other human being who has ever been born, must experience the new birth. They must, you must, according to verse 5, be born of water and the Spirit. Look at verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now this phrase, water and Spirit, is taken from Ezekiel 36 and 37, and this promise of a new covenant When God's people will receive new hearts, they will be cleansed from their sin. Their sin will be forgiven and taken away, and they will receive new desires, and the Spirit will be put inside of them so that now they can obey God from the heart. And every human being must experience this, or they cannot enter the kingdom of God. No access is granted. But here's the thing about this new birth. Just like a physical birth, you and I can't control it. We can't bring it about on our own. It's not up to you. It's not up to the will of man. Look at verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's not up to you or to me to induce our own spiritual birth. And here's the tension that we talked about last week, right? You see this tension, there's a requirement that you enter, that you experience the new birth in order to be able to enter the kingdom of God. You're born with a darkened heart. You have blinders on. You can't see God's glory and you can't see Christ. And if you can't see him because of your darkened heart, you can't exercise faith in him. You're born in rebellion against God and want nothing to do with him in your sinful condition. And the only way into God's kingdom is through the new birth. However, you can't bring about the new birth on your own. Only God can bring it about by his Holy Spirit. And the wonderful part about this chapter and this conversation is that even with this tension, God has made all the provision that you and I need to experience the new birth. And that's our third reason that you must experience the new birth, which is already on the screen. No doubt you've looked ahead. Christ provides what is necessary for the new birth. Here in verse 9, you have the last question that Nicodemus asks of Jesus here. Look at verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Probably best to to understand What he's saying here as meaning, how does this happen? He wants to know how this can possibly take place. Maybe he's feeling the tension here. He can't work this up on his own. He can't bring about the new birth. So how in the world does this happen? He can't make sense of this idea of the new birth. Now, what's amazing about Nicodemus not being able to make sense of this is, remember who he is. He is a Pharisee. 
We'll find out in verse 10 that he is a teacher, the teacher of Israel. No doubt he had lectured and taught on what was necessary to enter God's eternal kingdom. No doubt he had taught on this. But Jesus is telling him that this new birth is required and he maybe even has never heard of this before and can't make any sense of it. Yet, Jesus, as we saw last week, has clearly rooted this teaching in the Old Testament. It's as plain as day in Ezekiel 36 and 37. God's spirit has to breathe into the dead bones of your heart and bring new life for you to have the new birth and enter the kingdom. And yet, even though it's from the Old Testament, Nicodemus is unable to see it. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? It's like Nicodemus has a PhD in English literature, and he's never heard of William Shakespeare. It doesn't make sense for him to be an expert in the Old Testament scriptures and the teacher of Israel and to not know about the new birth. The Old Testament has taught these things. Nicodemus should have picked up on them. But then we find out that the real problem is not a lack of understanding. Maybe it is understanding, but the lack of understanding comes ultimately from a lack of faith. The real issue here and the reason that he doesn't know these things and hasn't experienced the new birth yet is he doesn't believe. He doesn't trust. Look at verses 11 and 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Verse 11 there, Jesus makes it clear that people weren't receiving his testimony. Verse 12, he says that even the relatively basic earthly things, I mean, what he's already been talking about, the new birth that is experienced on earth here and now that is spoken of in the Old Testament, not even receiving or believing those things at this point. And the people Jesus is arguing should believe. Nicodemus should trust what Jesus says. It should go without question that when Jesus speaks, they should believe it and all the people should believe it. And you and I should as well. Why? Look at verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. The point is that no one has actually been to heaven to report on these realities except Jesus. He has come down from heaven. He has access to all of this. He understands all of it. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's come down from heaven, and he's speaking of these realities. Therefore, Nicodemus, and you and I, must believe his word. We must trust that what he says is true. And when you're talking about this third reason that you have to experience the new birth here, Christ provides what is necessary. He provides two things that are necessary for the new birth. And the first is revelation. It's what we've just been talking about. It's the words of truth. It's revealing to us the Father. 
Jesus comes revealing the way to God, showing the way. He comes and makes the Father known to us. Jesus comes and speaks the truth. And so to experience the new birth, you have to have access to these words, and he gives them to us. In Scripture, the new birth is so closely tied to faith that at times it's almost as if they're indistinguishable. They're so closely tied together. And in the Bible, a key sign that the new birth has occurred in your heart, that you now have eyes to see, is that immediately you believe. You see the glory of Christ and you believe in his message. First John talks about this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So belief that Jesus is the Christ demonstrates the reality of the new birth. And so Jesus reveals what we need to know regarding God and the new birth and the teaching that he gives Nicodemus here. But beyond that, the second way that Jesus provides what we need and what is necessary for the new birth is that he provides the actual sacrifice necessary for forgiveness of sins. He provides the sacrifice that according to the new covenant provides the forgiveness of sins and new life. Look at verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, Jesus is obviously referring to an Old Testament story here, and most of you are probably familiar with this story. It's taken from Numbers chapter 21, and it's a short little story that comes in the narrative here, and I'd like to read the whole thing to you. It's just chapter 21, verses 4 to 9. You can follow along if you want, or you can just listen. It won't be on the screen. Verse 4, from Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live." And so the sin of the people brings about God's judgment on them with these serpents that are biting people and killing people. And in order to rescue them from death, God tells Moses to make a bronze serpent and to put this bronze serpent on a pole and to hold it up. And if the people were bitten and were going to die from the poison, what were they to do? 
They had to believe God's word and they had to trust that if they looked at this serpent that they would be healed. They were. And so why does Jesus refer to this here? Well, this is a type. This is a a picture that the Old Testament sets forth as a way for us to understand the ministry of Jesus and what would happen with Jesus. Now, of course, at this point in the gospel, if you're back in John 3, it says in verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. We don't know what that means yet. We don't have any idea at this point in the gospel of John what it means for the Son of Man to be lifted up. But we'll find out later in the gospel of John. John 12, Jesus speaking says this, And I... When I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? To be lifted up is the time and the moment when Jesus is lifted up on the cross as he dies for our sins. And in the same way that the Israelites would turn in faith based on God's word to the bronze serpent that Moses had made and they would be healed to turn in faith to Jesus as he is on the cross, as he is lifted up making atonement and sacrifice for our sins and to trust in that work, that brings about life. It's to recognize his death and to see his death as the the thing that I need because my understanding is darkened and because I'm a sinner. And I need the life that comes through him. Verse 15 makes this clear. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. One author put it like this. The kingdom of God is seen or entered. New birth is experienced and eternal life begins now through the saving cross work of Christ received by faith. So this is is what you and I need. This is the provision that Jesus gives us to experience the new birth. He tells us of God. He reveals to us who God is. And then he makes the sacrifice that we need in order to have forgiveness of sins and have new life. He provides all of that. Now, as you're reading through this and you see the provision that that Christ gives to us, and we have this opportunity to see him, to hear his words, and to believe in them, maybe we should be asking the question, The big question, why has God done this? Why would God make this possible? Why would Jesus be lifted up? Why would he go to the cross in order to provide eternal life for sinful people? Why even mess around with this? Why go to all this trouble? Why would he do this? That brings us to our fourth reason that you must experience the new birth. And it's that God loves and saves a perishing world through his son. Looks like the S got left off there. 
was not on my A-game putting this together, apparently. God loves and saves a perishing world through his Son. Now, verse 15, I think, ends Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. There's a little bit of a difference of opinion on this, and maybe your Bible has verses 16 through 21 in red, and that's fine. I'm willing to go that route. Personally, I think because of the language that is used and the words that are used, I think verses 16 through 21 are John the Apostle, kind of writing an editorial comment here after the conversation with Nicodemus. And so John here is going to reach back into the background and he is going to help us understand why all of this has even taken place. It seems so unlikely and so unbelievable that this would happen. And so he wants to give us an explanation for how this can take place. What brought Jesus to earth as a man? Why would he become flesh? Why would he be lifted up? Why would he die on the cross for our sins? Why does God offer and give eternal life to those who would believe? The answer is in verse 16, and you'll notice it begins with the word for. It's giving us the reason, the explanation, the basis for what Jesus has told Nicodemus in this chapter. The new birth, the reality of the new birth, the provision that Jesus makes available to us in his death on the cross that brings about the new birth, this is giving us the basis for that. And what is the basis for all of this? Verse 16, for God so loved the world. Or we should translate it, God loved the world in this way. According to this. This shows us how God loves the world. And here's the point. It all starts with God's love. I mean, this is the starting place for everything. It's God's love. We've already seen, if you've been with us in the Gospel of John, that the love of the Father for the Son through the Spirit, that Trinitarian love, goes all the way back into eternity past. This is the foundation of everything. It all starts here. A Father loving a Son through the Spirit. What was God doing before anything else existed? That's what He was doing. Delighting in and enjoying the relationship between the Father and the Son through the Spirit. John 1.1, we already read. John 17, verse 24, as Jesus is praying to the Father, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is why it matters so much that God is triune, that he is a trinity. It is not some minor doctrinal point that is and archaic, and we can sort of not worry about. Let the theologians argue about that. It matters that God is a trinity. God's love for himself, seen in the persons of the trinity, the Father for the Son through the Spirit, is the foundation of everything else. This is what 1 John 4 is talking about when it says, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is who he is. Before anything else, he's been a father loving a son. 
And this is the starting point. And this, this love is what led God to create anything at all. Why do we exist? Because of God's love. Not because he was lacking in something, but because he had so much love for his son that he wanted to put his son on display. And he wanted to create out of the overflow of his delight and of his love. His desire in love is to look outward and to share. And so he wanted to create others who could then rejoice in the character of his son and the love that he had for his son. And so he creates the world out of love and delight and a desire to express that love and to showcase that love. But in an unbelievable tragedy, his image bearers, those he had made out of love, turned away from that love, shunned that love, rebelled against it, listened to the voice of the serpent and saw God as a stingy God and not a giving and a good God. And instead, they chose to love self rather than God. And that is the definition, the fundamental definition of unrighteousness, isn't isn't it? To choose to love something other than God more than God. That rebellion, amazingly enough, despite that rebellion, that is precisely why John says here that God loved the world. That's what he is getting at. When John says that God so loved the world here, certainly God's love goes beyond the Jews to include Gentiles, but that's not what he's getting at. He's not talking about the breadth of his love. He's talking about the love that God has even for those who are in rebellion against him. Even those who make up the world the system that is opposed to God, that rises up in defiance of God. God's love for his creation is so great that it even extends to that world, to those creatures who are in rebellion against him. The point here is that God has loved his creation, his creatures, you and I, despite our sin. Now, it's interesting here when we're talking about God, right? Because God loves his creation and wants what is best for his creation. And at the same time, he hates their sin. He loathes the rebellion against him, the unrighteousness and the unholiness of it. And he loathes it to the point where he is willing to punish them in their sin because he delights in his own glory. But even despite their sin, he did not, and his willingness to punish it, he did not stop loving those he had made. And this love led him to do something, to act. And what did he do? Look further in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he loved the world in this way, that he gave his only son. The son whom he had loved for all eternity, whom he had delighted in for all eternity. He gave him as a gift to these creatures, creatures that he loved. He gave the son that he had delighted in for all eternity to his creatures who had rebelled against him. Romans 5 puts it like this. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows or demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God did not start loving us when Christ died for us. Christ died for us because of God's love. The gift is an expression of that love. Christ came because of God's love. And this gift given to us, made abundantly clear through the scriptures, through the ministry of Jesus, through the word of God, this gift of love must be met with a response. It demands it. Look at the rest of verse 16. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It must be met with a response. And there are only two responses. And everyone will respond in one of two ways. Believe in the gift of God's love given through the Son who died on the cross. That's one option. The other option is perish. That's it. Those are the two responses and the only two. Believe in Him, receive eternal life, a relationship with God, fail to believe. Look at verses 17 and 18. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. God. And we talked about God's love and the gift of the Son being an expression, being an expression of that love. And these verses flow naturally off of that. The mission of Jesus was not one of condemnation. It's an expression of love. Now, Jesus will bring judgment and condemnation because to reject him and to continue to fail to believe, to live in your sin, means you will continue to exist in a state of separation from God, and you will continue to exist in a state of spiritual death. But the very fact that Jesus came means that God has initiated a saving mission. He's pursued us by sending his Son. The world is plummeting and has been plummeting toward eternal death and destruction. But God has provided the means of salvation because of his love. That's the type of God that he is. But unfortunately, people will continue to reject that love. And they'll continue to reject the Son. They don't want it on their terms. They want it to be this way or that way, or they want to type a God they can manipulate, or they can make in their image. And so rather than taking God's word for what it is, believing it, turning from their sin, and casting themselves on the love of God expressed through the Son, rather than doing that, they will continue to walk in condemnation and darkness. Look at verses 19 through the end, or 19 and 20. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. When I read these verses, I get this image in my head of when you're in a dark room or maybe you're outside at night um, away from the city and it's very, very dark. There aren't a lot of streetlights or any streetlights. The stars, the moon is not bright that night and you can barely see. Or maybe you're in your basement and there are no windows at night and all the lights are off and it's very, very dark. Your eyes have adjusted to the darkness and so maybe you can start to make out the outline, a silhouette of someone, but your eyes have adjusted to the darkness and you are comfortable with the darkness and then someone flips a flashlight on and shines it right in your eyes. It's a painful thing to experience. It's blinding. It's uncomfortable. And I think that's what happens when the light of Jesus Christ comes into the world. It exposes us and exposes our sin and it puts his holiness on display. It's uncomfortable. But people don't reject the gospel because they don't understand it. Makes sense. They reject it because it painfully and clearly exposes their self-centeredness. They don't want to give up the reins of their lives. They want to stay in charge. They want to be in control. They want to pursue pleasure on their terms. They love their darkness. And they're comfortable in it. And they want to keep going that direction. They don't want to come to the light. They don't want to have to admit their sin and see themselves for, for who they are, how twisted and corrupt and rebellious their hearts are. And so having the light shine on your darkness means seeing who I am at the deepest level and acknowledging my twisted and corrupt heart and my need for forgiveness. It means being forced to see my life for what it is. It means that coming to the light requires humble repentance and faith. Look at verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The one who comes to the light knows that he or she doesn't stand on his own. Notice the last phrase there. His works have been carried out in God. He comes to the light and can only come to the light in God because God has worked and God has given him the eyes to see. And so because he's seen the light through the work of God, he sees his sin or she sees her sin for what it is and knows that any goodness he or she has, has been done in and through God and on his terms. And so, let me pull all of this together here. Here's the beauty of the message of the gospel. We're all born into this world painfully corrupt and spiritually dead, unable to initiate a relationship with God, we're condemned by our sin and our self-centeredness, and that makes it impossible for us to come to the light. And yet, we have to experience the new birth in order to enter the kingdom of God. But God, because of his great love, because he is a God of love, and he loves his creation, he has sent Jesus to shine 
the light of the glory of God into the world. And he has revealed the gospel message to us through the work of Christ as Christ has been lifted up on the cross. And he's calling us to turn from our sin and turn to Christ in humble repentance and faith and believe in him is what I need and the only way to enter the kingdom of God. And when that happens, the words of verse 18 will be true. Look back there. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Not condemned. No longer living with a sentence of judgment on you and condemnation. No matter what you've done, no matter how dark your heart no matter how long you have lived in a state of self-centeredness, pursuing your own pleasure, no matter how you have pretended, no matter how many times you have rejected the gospel of Christ and refused it, when you believe, you are not condemned. It's wiped away. You are fully accepted because of the Son and given eternal life and given an entrance into his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful for this text. We're thankful, Father, for the love that you have for us as your creatures. It is a a righteous love. It is a love that demands holiness, and it is a love that gloriously provides what we need. It is a love that sent the Lord Jesus Christ to reveal our need to us and also to be lifted up on the cross to draw people to yourself so that we might have eternal life and we might enter your kingdom. I pray that you would use this passage in two ways this morning. If there are those who are here who have never believed in you, who have never experienced the new birth, never repented of their sins and turned in faith to you, I pray that you would do that work in them this morning. That their eyes would be opened and they would see the glory of Christ and would respond in repentance and faith. And then I pray for those who are believers, who have been walking with you, who have experienced the new birth and are confident in that. I pray that this would build their faith. That they would continue to find great joy and satisfaction and delight in your love for us expressed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that these gospel realities would grow us and sanctify us, would change us to be more like Christ. And then I pray that we would share that message with others. We're thankful for for your word. We're thankful for our time together this morning. May we respond with joy and with worship of you for your love and for who you are. It's in Christ's name we pray.